title to what I want to talk about tonight. Maybe it would be uh, abortion in a biblical perspective. Um, what, I'm, what I plan to do may just come out as some um, random thoughts that I've had. I know that many of you have had thoughts and many of you have had discussions with people over this past week uh, such that I have gotten questions this week and I'm, I'm going to try to answer some of those questions. No doubt I won't be able to answer them to everybody's um, uh, fullest satisfaction. Uh, I won't be able to answer those questions exhaustively. And maybe there are questions that you have that uh, you still want to wrestle with and, and work through. And so if there's any way that I can help you, and I'm sure Rodney would be willing to do the same, uh, please just to take some time to, to talk to us. But this past week, as you well know, the Supreme Court of the United States made a ruling in the Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization case, which ultimately corrected a 50-year-old um, ruling, uh, egregiously wrongful ruling. There, there are no uh, constitutional lawyers that would say that it was a, a correct ruling based on the Constitution. It took 50 years to correct that ruling, and it has obviously been met with a tremendous amount of vigor on just about every side. Incidentally, I was speaking to some folks in Uganda this week, and they knew about the ruling already, and they said it will certainly have trickle-down effects all throughout the world. And so we don't want to be uh, ignorant of the fact that what goes on here in many cases does impact the rest of the world. And what I want to do tonight is try to provide somewhat of a biblical view on a number of things regarding uh, abortion. But if we're going to do that, uh, I want to set in perspective some of the things that have happened. I don't know if you got to, to take in what Nathan taught this morning in Bodybuilders, and I'm guessing that was recorded, Rodney, and maybe is it up? Hopefully recorded and up. If you haven't gotten a chance to listen to that, you certainly need to do that as Nathan led us through understanding uh, God's sovereignty over nations and uh, just really, really good. And one of the things that he said in that time and, and emphasized is the fact that God is the one who, who, who has the king's heart in his hands. And as it were, the scripture says, he turns the king's heart in whatever way he wants. And we also learned that God is the one who raises up nations and God is the one who tears down nations. And over the years, uh, particularly around the month of November, about every four years or so, I'll, I'll bring a sermon uh, that will be dealing with that reality, that though man votes or, or men elect, God is the one who appoints. And we have to understand that there is something, someone who is working in his providence behind the scenes. And it is, and, and I hope that this is not going to, um, I'm not seeking to be any, well, I'll just say it. Uh, God raises up certain individuals for certain purposes. God raises up certain nations for certain purposes. And as we put this, 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 this ruling, this, which I would like to call a correction, as we put this, this, this 50 year, this error that had gone on for 50 years, as that was put in and brought into correction, we have to understand that God is the one who has raised up certain individuals. And in this case, and though it might not be proper to say in some settings, in this case, I'm talking namely about our former president, uh, Donald Trump, that, he, that God is the one who raised him up 
to do exactly what he did and when he did it. And that is this, to the best of his knowledge, he said he would and he did nominate non-activist judges and perhaps will be his greatest um, and most long-lasting legacy. And so I'm perfectly okay saying that because I've said these things before to you, that in the same way leaders are raised up to bring further judgment on a people, as I believe we have seen uh, in the past, those same leaders are also raised up, and in this case, raised up, uh, we've learned, to bring about what is a monumental correction of an errant decision. This is something that if we could step back and see the unseen, we will see the, the hand of providence working in such a way. Indeed, it's true that righteousness exalts any nation, Proverbs 14.34. And I mean to say that in the same way, in the line of Lincoln to free the slaves, in the line of Wilberforce who worked his whole life to end the human slave trade, in the line of Cyrus who was called by God to free the Jewish exiles, I believe that Donald Trump was raised up to lead to this correction. Say what you will about anything else, we are just simply making a, a, a point to understand that there is a biblical perspective, a sovereign perspective, a, a, a hand of providence behind of all this. And God did it in a way that almost no one imagined. I don't know that we will actually be able to put in perspective the, the, the weight of what has happened over this last, uh, these last few days. It's history-making, world-shaking in so many ways ways. Personally, it was a reminder to me that voting is not a complete waste. As I've told you in another time, in another place, even if it were, I don't vote simply for outcome, but rather I have learned to cast my vote, or am learning to cast my vote in this context, right? I'm speaking in an American context, to cast my vote as a stewardship before the Lord. And in this case, I am grateful that my vote was useful for ultimately leading to something of such monumental consequence. And it reminds me, and it ought to remind you, to be a careful steward as you weigh how to cast your vote on biblical principles as a stewardship before the Lord. So that in perspective, that you keep providence in perspective. Remember there is a hidden hand working in all of these things, and you have seen what the Lord has done. With that in mind, I want to begin tonight by just trying to provide as succinct as a, a, a definition of abortion as I, I can. And if you're looking for nuance, you're not going to find it here tonight. I'm going to try to provide as best I can a, a succinct definition of abortion. Abortion is the intentional killing of an innocent human being. And, uh, and abortion is the intentional killing of an innocent human being. And being that's the case, I want to address that in about five different ways. Uh, first of all, I want to talk about God as being the creator of life. God as the creator of life life. Let me just tell you a couple of things. Conception, the act of the 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 fact of conception is from 
the Lord. Let me just take you to a couple of places in the scriptures just to demonstrate that. I'm just going to read to you a couple of places here. We're going to begin, first of all, in Genesis chapter 16. Genesis chapter 16, and we're just saying here, God is a creator of life. Conception is of the Lord. You see this here. In Genesis chapter 16, verse 2. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Just stop right there. The Lord has prevented me from bearing children. What we're saying is, conception is of the Lord. A few more chapters over. Chapter 21, verse 2. We'll start in verse 1. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised, and Sarah conceived. You see the connection there between what the Lord said and what happened was there. Sarah conceived. Another one. Look back a couple of books now. Go back to the book of Ruth. Look back at the book of Ruth. And as we, we move on here, I want to show you, actually, you go to the book of Ruth. Let me show you here the book of Judges first. I'll tell you to Judges 13 first, and then we'll go back to Ruth, just to keep it. Judges 13, 3, and the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not born children, but you shall conceive and you shall bear a son. Speaking here to Manoah's wife. And the connection there again of God in charge of conception. Ruth chapter 4, verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife and he went into her and the Lord gave her conception. All that to say, Psalm 127.3, children then are a gift from the Lord. The Bible says children are heritage from the Lord. From that point of conception, God is the one who is the ruler. God is the one who is the creator. The Bible says to us in Psalm 139, you might want to turn there just for a moment, Psalm 139, verse 13, You formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. Conception is of the Lord. God is the creator of life. You can say today, and and as you're you're thinking about this, again, I want to try to be really practical. I want you to think about this yourself. I want you to think about this issue in terms of uh, abortion and how it affects you, but then how you relate to other people. You can say for yourself and you can remind others, you are the creation, the direct creation of God. You are the direct creation of God. We are created as His possession. Again, Psalm 139.13, You formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. He says, you've you've made me in my inward parts. That's a reference to the real person. The seed of desire. The seed of longing. 
the most hidden and most vital part of our being. David is calling attention to the fact that God is the maker. God is the creator. He is the owner of creation. And so I find it helpful as I'm having these discussions with people, just to bring it down to this, what do we know? We know that you, my friend, are a direct result of the creation of God. He formed you in your inward parts. God made you by himself and for himself. You're created as his possession. But you're created for his purpose as well. I praise you for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. You're created for, you're not an accident. Now, the verses here, 14 and 15, might be a little bit difficult. But the point, I think, is this. There is no accidental creation. And this is important when we get to the issue uh, of abortion, as we'll talk in a little bit later. You're not made without the knowledge of God. Nobody, nowhere is made without the knowledge of God. But rather with great knowledge, indeed intimate knowledge, even in the secret, even when unseen to human eyes, God is the one skillfully, who skillfully wrought you, knowingly as if he had a real purpose. There's no accident. There's no accidental deformity. Exodus chapter 4, verse 11. No accidental deformity. No accidental creation. The direct result of the work of God. You are created as His possession. You are created for His purpose. You are created according to His plan. Verse 16 says, Your eyes, this is 139, 16. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. When God made you, He did not simply see the beginning But amazingly, God saw the end as well. He saw and He planned the unformed substance. That is, the flesh of our body. And you've seen all of those those commentaries, those documentaries, those those, uh, 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 truths that that explain how much, how that baby, uh, even to the point of conception, is, is being formed within an unformed substance. Not only unformed flesh, but he saw and he planned out the days of our lives. And though our minds can be, are are very finite, we have the infinite foreknowledge of God placed before us. That is, listen, God has marked out for you the very creation of your body. Not only the very creation of your body, but the very creation of your being. Even this very day, even this very night, the Bible calls this the day of salvation and what His grace has poured out to you before you in limitless supply and without measure. And He has given an exact number to your days. And so we're created in the image of God. We're created in the image of God. Everyone is created in the image of God. He's the one who has given us the ability to feel and to love and to hate and to relate and to choose and to think and to act accordingly. So, let me say it this way. Taking an infant life, Exodus 21, 22 through 25, 
is actually murder. It's taking, intentionally taking an innocent human life. So we know a little bit about what abortion is, and then we have this understanding that God is the, the creator. He Conception, everything from conception on up is, is, is God's doing. It's the intricate, intimate forming of God in the unseen parts. And, and so I say again to you, you need to think about yourself like that as a direct result of the sovereign providential uh, intervention of God. Think of yourself like that. And then look at each other and think about that other person beside you like that as a direct result of the intervention, of sovereign intervention of God. You are His creation. And as you talk with people, as you go to work this week and, and, and folks ask you, well, you're a Christian, what do you think about this whole abortion thing? And, 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 and as you just, you begin to, you begin here understanding, well, Fred, let me tell you, you are a creation of God. And I look at you as a creation of God. Then, uh, and again, these might seem random because I'm just going to deal with some questions that have been brought up. Um, the question is, what about rape? And what about incest? Having said what I just said, right? Everybody's talking about rape and, and incest today. Well, a few things. Although extremely rare, pregnancy as a result of rape and incest does, of course, happen. In which cases it's supposed that it's for the mental well-being of the mother that abortion ought to be not only available but is then justified. Now, in an admittedly emotionally uh, revved up discussion, we have to understand that this usually is just an argument to take away the focus from actually arguing what 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 actually the actual argument is 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 abortion on demand for any purpose to argue for abortion on demand from the hard cases of rape and incest is like one man said it's like trying to argue for the elimination of traffic laws from the fact that one might have to violate some of them in rare circumstances we ought to get rid of traffic laws can i get an amen we ought to get rid of traffic laws because, you know, maybe my child will one day need to be rushed to the hospital and I will have to break them. So we can't have any laws. We can't have any restrictions. Proving an exception does not establish a general rule. But, nonetheless, we live in a sin-filled world. We live in a sinful world. And these kinds of things are actual reality. So what do we do? Can I take you to Psalm 82? Psalm 82. This is a psalm of Asaph. A psalm I don't know how many times I've read, but today feels like the very first time that I've come in contact with it. Verse 1. God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. 
How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. And I'll just stop right there. It ought to be very clear that God is concerned for the weak and needy. He is greatly concerned for those who've been hurt, not just in sin, as if hurt in their own sin, but he is greatly concerned for those who have been hurt by sin. Sin is a reality in this world. And realizing that conception is of the Lord, realizing that there there are no mistakes, there's no mistake conception somehow that God didn't Uh, you know, know about or that God was sort of not in on, we have to understand that we cannot neglect those who are hurting and who have been so grievously hurt by such a terrible sin. Not only should we not neglect those who are hurting, those who are unborn and hurting, but those upon whom such Injustice has been uh, done. And so when it comes to what do I say about rape and incest? I simply say we live in a sin-filled world, don't we? And we can all agree that this is a terrible injustice. A terrible unrighteousness. On, that there are no, there's no way to win. And we could, we could go through the amounts of time that we, we find the, the, the suicide rate and those women who have had abortions, how high that goes up. And we can talk about all those things. But what we're concerned with is exactly what God says here. We are to seek justice for the weak and the fatherless. In both, in both cases, we're not to just push out the fatherless as if they're nothing and throw them into the trash heap like they did in the days of the Romans. We're to welcome them and to love them and to rescue them. At the same time, we're to have a heart for those who've been hurt in such sin or hurt by such sin. Let us not neglect those who are hurting because God would have us to be a rescuing people. Now, when I get to the end of this, I'll tell you about uh, some practical ways to do that. Third question. And this has been the question that I think I've received as much. What about the killing of entire nations of people? Specifically, I made mention of this morning, the 10th plague in Egypt, the firstborn son. What, how do we think about God taking that life, God bringing their lives to the end. Now, admittedly, very difficult, especially from our perspective, because we, we're, we're here, we're not up there. But I want you to remember, as I told you this morning, I want you to remember the absolute stubborn hardness of these people. I mentioned uh, Rahab, and Pastor Rodney will get into that in a few weeks as he leads us through Joshua 2, but it was very clear amongst the Canaanite people that God was, there's a God in heaven who's doing unbelievable things. I mean, they had heard, of course, of the, the work that God had done to, to, to separate the Red Sea and not only to separate the Red Sea, but then to, to drown the entire Egyptian 
army, which is why there were these city-states to begin with anyway, because Egypt's power had been so uh, pressed down and so mitigated in those days. And they knew that God was at work, and they knew that there was a God in heaven. And even though they knew it, very few of them, mentioned this morning in Joshua, Rahab and the Gibeonites are some. Very few of them turned from their wicked ways. Very few of them. They knew and they still denied him and they lived in such a way that was absolutely and wholeheartedly wicked. And God brought his divine punishment. God fixed their hearts in their hardness. Which is exactly why you ought to Turn from your wickedness now. Right? God fixed their hearts in that wickedness and then brought his judgment to bear on them. And indeed, with the Egyptians, that meant even children. From our perspective, wow. But as we think about that, there's an inference of Scripture that those children upon their death were taken immediately to the presence of God. God then, in an act of sovereign grace, indeed in an act of judgment, but in an act of sovereign grace and through the propitiating work of Jesus Christ, bringing His judgment on those people at the same time I think the inference from Scripture is that he swept those children immediately into his presence, thereby avoiding them growing up in such horrid, unimaginable conditions. People are sent to hell, Revelation chapter 20, based on the record of their sins. Jonah chapter 4 Jeremiah 19, I mean, there's, there's passages all over the place. There's a, a, an entire, uh, we could probably talk for an entire, uh, the, the entire time tonight, plus some on the biblical inferences, the biblical evidence that children up to a certain age, whatever age that is, I don't believe in a, a specific age of accountability in that way, that children are taken immediately into the presence of our great God. Our great and gracious God. Someone then is going to say, does that mean that abortion is good? In the sense that aren't you populating heaven then with little boys and girls? No, it is a terrible evil. Why? Because in the case of an abortion, the intentional killing of an innocent human, it is the case of the creature on the basis of their own flawed and futile reckoning taking and making God-like decisions, taking decisions that are reserved on, uh, for God onto themselves. And what do I say if I'm talking to somebody who asks me about these terrible, the, the, the terrible plague of, of Egypt, about, about the, the, the terrible slaughter of, of Canaanites as they uh, lived in their wickedness? I would simply point this out to them and remind them, as Jesus would remind them, that unless you repent, you will likewise perish. This is why I told you this morning, 
remember there is a judgment to flee. All of this, these, 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 this teaching, these things that are written, these stories, this historical narrative that's brought to us is to remind us that there is a very real judgment that you must flee. And then, I'll take this one as my last and then try to finish up. What about, and I didn't know how to form this question, and I'll, I'll explain it to you. I'll, I'll tell you what it is, and then I'll, I'll explain it to you. What about the culture of life argument? The culture of life argument. Maybe you've heard those people who've said something like this. I think about um, uh, uh, pastors, church leaders, so-called theologians who don't just lean left, but they're on the left, who I've heard this week say something, oh, I'm so glad this ruling got overturned, and then what's the next word out of their mouth? But, like, it'd be better if it's, I am so glad this ruling got overturned, period. But it's usually, I'm so glad this ruling got overturned, but those, those who typically would call themselves or be referred to as being woke. This ends up not, and so what they end up doing is saying, I'm so glad this got overturned. I, I, I read, read a statement today by one former person who would probably have identified as a conservative who said, uh, it's really weighing on my heart. <laughs> How can this really weigh on your heart? This is nothing but good. And they'll normally say, but we've got to create an entire culture of life. Now, nobody's going to argue with that. At least nobody who loves God and understands and seeks to, to, to obey the Bible. But unfortunately, that kind of statement often, though I can't know somebody's heart, and so we have to talk to those people, but often underlies or betrays an underlying and sometimes subtly Marxist ideology of division and godlessness. It's usually based on the, when they say we've got to create a culture of life, it's based on the centrality of government and, 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 and it ultimately leads to some kind of a socialistic structure. We've got to bring equality and then they talk about divisions and things like that that has happened and that's happened in all of the, 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 the woke things that we've seen in CRT and, and whatnot. We have got to beware of being conformed to the culture around us. Of course we want, life is given by God. But creating a culture of life certainly doesn't mean making sure that we just distribute to people uh, willy-nilly who aren't willing to work. That's the kind of understanding we need to have. So then, what? What does this mean for us? How do we actually live in this kind of, in this kind of culture? I want to give you, and there, there are many ways. There are just things I've sat down and thought about for myself. Ten ways that I can personally value life and minister in this kind of culture. Number one, 
I can condemn abortion roundly and without nuance. I can condemn abortion roundly and without caveat. I can say this is an evil perpetrated by Satan and his minions. Satan who is a murderer from the beginning. And not be concerned that someone's going to say, well, that's not very nice. Secondly, I can live righteously and pursue holiness. I can live my life in such a Godward manner that my life is directed towards His glory and, and, and a holy kind of living that identifies me as a follower of Jesus Christ. Most often in our culture today, what identifies someone as a Christian is simply a statement on Facebook or, or Instachat or whatever. You know? Instagram, whatever it's called. Instead of the way that God says that we identify ourselves as a follower of Jesus Christ. Third, and we, I, I, I did some research and some searching back at how the, the first century church lived in a Roman culture where it was, uh, this kind of abortion, sin of abortion was rampant. Children thrown out on the streets. I can rescue those discarded by family and society. You need to have a, a sense in which I'm rescuing those who are who have been discarded. In other words, there needs to be a, a sense in which I evaluate my life and, and seek to free up my life to be able to freely minister to those. I, I said to somebody a couple of weeks ago, I, I was able to get into the hospitals to visit for the first time just a few weeks ago after all of this, this COVID debacle stuff and and one of the things that I miss the most about visiting is not only visiting those people who are from the church and I get to pray with them, but then just stopping in some random room and saying, hey, I'm Pastor Joe. What's your name? And I have not one time, not one time have I had anybody look at me and tell me to hit the road. I, I'll ask them for, I'm not even in there for a few minutes. I just want to know what's going on with you. Can I pray with you? Can I give you some value? Can I show you that you're important? And just taking time out of schedule, freeing up your life to, to rescue the discarded, those who are discarded by family and those who are discarded by, by society. I think, I think number four, I can exalt and exemplify a biblical family unit. Exalt and exemplify a biblical family unit. And at the same time, and I see so many of you doing this well, as we do that, invite others in to partake of this biblical family unit. To be able to see it. Have them into your house for a meal. And let them see what happens when a family gets around a table and a family eats and a father prays and leads in, in giving thanks to the Lord. These are ways that we create a culture of life that don't require, you know, social compromise I developed number five I want to develop and teach a biblical sexual ethic develop and teach a biblical sexual ethic think about 
the sexual relationship with marriage as that which is given by God and, and under those parameters. And not only does that, does that affect how I think and how I do things, but how I teach that to my children and grandchildren and everyone that I come into contact with. Six, and I just alluded to this, we can practice and seek to practice biblical hospitality. When's the last time you opened up your home to a stranger? When's the last time you opened up your life to a stranger? Again, whether you have them in your home for a meal or whatever that might be. Along with that, number seven, I, I see that I can be in a, involved in a discipleship relationship. Find a younger person, someone who's younger than me, and just take them alongside my, my wing and disciple them. Whether that be in the church or maybe I can go out into the world and just find someone and say, hey, do you want to be my friend? Can I teach you what I learn in the Bible? As weird as that sounds, somebody out there is going to say, yeah, I'd love you to do that. I just talked to somebody this week who did exactly that same thing, and they said, that sounds like a good idea. I've been wanting to know what the Bible says anyway. Number eight, I just said this as well. I can teach my children and grandchildren. Show them and exemplify what it means to live a gracious and kind life. A life in which I, my, my home is opened up. Now listen, I understand that we're not going to be able to, to minister to every need. That we're, not, we're not going to be able to do that. There are going to be more needs. I'm going to die and there's still going to be needs in this world. But there are some needs that I can serve. You remember hearing the story before, a guy walking along the beach. You remember and he sees this kid and there was all these starfish washed up on the shore and he's picking one starfish up after another, throwing him, throwing him, throwing him. And uh, the guy says, hey, what are you doing? He said, I'm, I'm, I'm saving starfish. And the guy says to the kid, you can't save all those starfish. You're not going to make that much of a difference. And the kid picked up one and threw it back in and said, it made a difference for that one, right? And that's the way that we look at this life. Number nine, consider adopting. Or you say, ah, I'm old. Well, yeah, find someone who is considering adoption and give them money and help them. Just help them. Say, you know what? I want to I join together with you. I know you're considering adoption, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to clean out some of my retirement. Here you go. And I'm going to offer to babysit once a week. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to help you with these. Just do that. That's a culture of life. Partner with others in this church. This is number 10. To provide care for a single mom. We did that a little bit in a limited way through Human Life Services this last year with, with Christmas. But, but is that something you could do regularly? Find a, a group, maybe in your small group, in your growth group, and say, what we're going to do is we're going to take care of such and such, and we're going to make sure that her needs are met and her baby is well-loved, and we're going to just help and assist her. That's the way to create a culture of life Without, that's a way to counter that argument that so often has Marxist ideological leanings that I want to stay away, stay away from. Well, uh, our time is just about up, and uh, there's so much more to say, and you know, you know what that means, right? Uh, 
That means my notes are gone. Uh, I've run out of notes. This is what a preacher does when he's just he's reached the end. He just says, well, there's so much more to say, you know. There is a lot more to say on the subject. Those are some things that, that have come to my mind. Maybe you have other questions or things that we'll, we're not going to do them here tonight, but you could submit them to myself or to Rodney. And as they, those come along, maybe we can deal with them in such a way. Maybe you've had conversations with people. This is an excellent, excellent, excellent opportunity for the gospel, to bring, to, to bringing the gospel to bear on your coworkers, on uh, folks all around you. Don't miss this opportunity. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace to us in the Lord Jesus Christ and would ask you tonight to help us to deal wisely and to live righteously in these days, not being conformed to this world, but being transformed as we renew our mind with your word, that we might be bold witnesses for Christ in this day and believe you have created this as a, a measure of revival in our time, who knows how long this window will be. Lord, let us be bold witnesses for Christ. Pray for those who are right now in the throes of these, uh, the deception. I pray that you might rescue them through your church and that we might be your, uh, in a very real way, your hands and feet in this world to your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said, amen. Are we going to do anything? No.